Okay. Revelation chapter 17. After uh, a good long week of research and development in this passage, I kept thinking, boy, I sure wish we were out of it. And on to the next chapter, on to the next challenge. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough passage. We're dealing with something that is actually happening all around us today. And that is how man's hearts and man's eyes are not where they need to be. Man is depending upon man more and more, upon technology and upon... uh, social changes of, of all sorts to try to make sense of, of, of this world. It's, it's a world that if we just read the scriptures, we would realize is, is a cursed world. Cursed at the fall. Cursed for nearly 6,000 years. Because man fell into sin. And since then, has had to experience death. And with death comes so many variables. We have to to become nations of laws because man is lawless at the root and core of his being. And every society and every culture has had some kind of law, but... Even the most law-focused culture has to deal with those who don't care about law, who don't care about what's right, because of that deception in the garden. Did God really say those things to you? And that same attitude and that that same deception and that same lie has has existed through every generation and through every society and through every culture since Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? To the extent that those who came out of the garden into servitude, as it were, to the flesh and to death and all... Uh, though the Lord made a way for those who would believe to, uh, to be right with him again. And the, and the work that God has to do to instill in people what his real motives are in, in, in continuing to bring his ways to this world. And there in the same chapter was that statement by God to, to Satan who brought in sin into the world. That there was going to be the seed of the woman. The promise of the Messiah. His way. His answer. His reestablishing of what he intended all along from the very beginning, which was life. The lie of of the enemy brought death. God is not the author of death. He's the author of life. So we live in in a fallen world that all around us reeks of death. Except when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it is there that Jesus died, bearing the sins of the world, and buried them, and on the third day he rose again. It means a lot to think about that as we look at these last chapters, these last chapters of the book of Revelation. 
We got into chapter 17 and we realize now that, that we're focusing our attention upon the rise and the fall of, of, of Babylon. The very place that rebellion from a religious perspective began. Babel, Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis 11. Genesis 10 mostly, where we meet someone named Nimrod. It is Nimrod who goes to build this, this tower. He's a, he's a man that is against God. He's a hunter, a mighty hunter before the Lord, which means he was a mighty hunter against all that God stood for and represented Reflecting really the heart of man that listened to the lie of the, day of the devil and be, decided, you know, we don't need a God, we can be gods ourselves. That's really what, you, what the devil taught us. You don't need God, you, just, you can be a God yourself. That, that's exactly what the, what the lie was, was intended to teach in, in the garden. Did God really say you should need of that fruit? He doesn't want you to be like him. But if you eat the fruit, you'll be like him. So we've looked at the first six verses, and we're going to keep coming back to some of those verses throughout the rest of our, our study of this chapter. And I know we're going to get close to the finish of this chapter, hopefully before the rapture of the church, but if not, if not, pretty soon. But I want to begin reading in verse 7, because we've already met the woman was called the great harlot, the, the mother of harlots and, the, and of abominations, who rides on this beast and kind of rejoices, as it were, in the blood of the saints, as it says in verse 6. She was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. But here in verse 7 it says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? It says that to John. Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. As I said last week, there's a lot of symbolism here that we're going to have to deal with. Verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life or the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. And the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. That's our reading for tonight. We're not going to get that far. This photo was taken in 2003, and it is of the reconstructed city of Babylon, something that was, was done uh, by uh, Saddam Hussein as he was trying to rebuild the majesty and the glory of of the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I don't know if you'll notice the tanks that are over in the, on the right-hand side of the picture, but those are ours, <laughs> I think. But here's the question that I want to ask you all tonight. Is this modern Babylon? Well, obviously it is. It's in Babylon and it's in modern times. But is it the only modern Babylon? Is this modern Babylon? 
Anybody recognize that skyline? If you look over to your right, there's the Empire State Building. Is this modern Babylon? Or, or maybe this, as some people believe today. Is this modern Babylon? Y'all know where this is? This is a test. You know, I'm going to have to all right, take out your pencils and paper. Well, this is, the Vatican, this is the Vatican in Rome. How many of you recognized it? Okay, don't lie. Okay. I'm just kidding. All right, is, is, this, is this modern Babylon? It's, it's quite possible. It's quite possible. Or, or, maybe, or maybe this. Get a little closer to home now. If we're talking about governments and kingdoms and all, is, is this modern Babylon? It's possible. Consider, would this be modern Babylon if there you see a, a, a kind of an artist rendition of the Tower of Babel, but on the right-hand side you see actually a poster that was done a number of years ago, uh, not that many years ago, but a number of years ago, uh, about uh, the European uh, uh, Union. Europe, many tongues, one voice. Boy, where they got their ideas from, you know. I like to talk to their merchandising people, you know. They got us straight out of the book of Genesis. Look at how, look at how clear, uh, how, how uh, similar those are. Is that modern Babylon? Is Europe modern Babylon? I forgot uh, to mention that this also can be considered Babylon as well. As a matter of fact, we'll see that as we go on in the book of Revelation. The city of Jerusalem is called spiritual Babylon. We'll talk about that later. But as I've already stated, chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation deal with the rise and the fall of Babylon. Babylon in all of its forms, political, religious, commercial, and otherwise. All of whatever is called Babylon is going to rise and fall in these two chapters. Uh, This chapter, 17, deals primarily with religious Babylon, while chapter 18 will focus more on commercial or economic and political Babylon. Now, the two broad categories of religious and commercial Babylon are, in fact, intertwined. You you can't uh, separate one from the other. They're, They're really intertwined. They will feed off of each other, as we shall see in our continuing study of these chapters. Now, I mentioned last time that one of the key elements in understanding the symbolism of the great harlot as a type of religious Babylon is the error and the persecution of apostate religions. Not excluding, of course, not excluding apostate churches claiming to be Christian, but including more than just pseudo-Christian churches. In other words, all pagan religious organizations that profess any or many ways to God apart from Jesus Christ. That's including those, but also some that say that they represent Jesus. So in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that we cannot be short-sighted in hanging all of the responsibility or false, of false religion on the Roman Catholic Church, as some have done, or even on Rome itself. And this is not a defense of that. Because even though there are connections to Babylon and Romanism, and I'm going to actually touch upon that more next week, and it is important that we touch upon it. But let's not forget again the influence that Islam has had on the world stage in these last days. For some reason in America, we have this, you know, and in the West, we have this thing like, okay, so, you know, we're going to go through the study of, of, of prophecy and we're, we're getting closer to the end. And, and all of a sudden we see these, we see, we see these chapters in, in the book of Revelation that are talking about, you know, uh, everything that's happening in the Middle East, everything that's happening in Israel and, and, and its surrounding nations that are its enemies. And then all of a sudden, be, before we know it, we're, we're, we're lifting up this, you know, there is this, this religion that is, that is, uh, 
there's going to be a, a focused upon a one world type of a religion, one world type of a government as well. In other words, just a one a new world order, as it were. The new world order, by the way, includes religious, political, and economic things. All the way down the line, and all of that really is a part of Babylon. But the minute we say, well, the religious is always an apostate church, we only think in terms of church. But not everybody goes to church. Some go to synagogues. Do you ever remember, do you remember reading back in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation when we've got to the church of Pergamos? And it says that there in the, church, in, in the city of Pergamos was the seat of Satan. And, then, and it's talk, it talks about the synagogue of Satan. Not everybody goes to church. There weren't churches, as a matter of fact, in that time. But there was a synagogue of Satan. But even today, there are synagogues and there, there are temples. Temples to all kinds of gods. All over the world. I know that I've, I, I've gone through this rant with you before. But this is just a review of my ranting. We have to realize that if there is a a one world religion, it isn't a one world church and it's only the Roman Catholic Church. I'm trying to get you all to realize that we have to broaden our understanding because we're dealing with a first century book. Religious Babylon is much bigger than one apostate church or church movement. I mean, let's remember also that Protestantism contains a number of apostate denominations that are now in some kind of ecumenical union and communion with Catholics. And then you'll see in just a moment that it isn't just Catholics they're in in communion with. But the point is this. We are warned throughout the Word of God that we as believers in Jesus Christ and believers in His everlasting gospel, we face peril from false brethren, from false deceivers, from antichrists, from false prophets, from false teachers, false Christs and savage wolves. We, we went over this list last week. And none which will spare the flock. None of them will spare the flock. And so this great harlot which represents the false religious system of Babylon, stands in direct contrast to the virgin bride of Christ, as Paul states in 2 Corinthians 11. So turn to 2 Corinthians 11 for just a moment. There in verses 2 through 4 it says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, Paul says, for I have betrothed you to one husband, In other words, I have shared the gospel with you of Jesus Christ. You've come to the knowledge of Christ in your life. And and so what I've done is betrothed you to one husband that that, uh, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That comes about because God, through the work of Jesus Christ, has cleansed us, made us new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now we are a chaste virgin of Christ as a member and a part of the body of Christ, the church. And there is only one true bride. Not many brides. Just one true bride. And one really true bridegroom, Jesus. And then Paul says, but I fear, notice what he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. What is that doing? Paul is taking us back to Genesis chapter 3. And he says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I can tell you this, when we have built one law upon another or one uh, uh, human way of looking at, at Scripture and, and, and gone away from the simplicity of the Scripture and, and built up traditions and built up theologies and, 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 and built up rites and rituals and ways of doing one thing or another in a church, we have gotten away from the simplicity that is Christ. 
And then he says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may very well put up with it. I mean, Paul was worried about the Corinthians. He knew them pretty well. He knew that they were, they were devoted to the Lord, but they had some problems in that church, just like every church has some problems. But he was concerned that their focus would be taken off of Jesus and the simplicity of the gospel and put upon anything that just sounded like the gospel. I mentioned last week, people come to our door, knock on the door all the time. They want to tell you about their literature and their church or their belief. Do you know the Word of God enough to say, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. It's another gospel. The targets, the targets of people like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, the targets are always church-going people that don't know a thing about the Word of God. And then they get deceived. And then this verse of Scripture comes true. You might very well put up with it. You see, religion plays a major role in the last days, doesn't it? No matter what we're facing, you know, when everybody's telling us, oh, listen, you Christians. I mean, we hear a lot about tolerance. And everybody's supposed to be tolerant about everybody's beliefs except Christians. You know, Christians are, you know, we're we're just not to be tolerated. We're not to be tolerated, actually. Because we believe in the truth. We believe in the Word of God. We believe in what the Word of God says. We believe it from cover to cover, verse by verse. We believe it. The world says, well, we can tolerate everything else, but we can't tolerate you. So don't they defeat their own purpose by not being tolerant toward us? An amazing thing. But religion plays a major role in the last days. The picture that we have of the harlot riding the beast, or Antichrist system, as it were, uh, appears as if she's ruling. Right? I mean, if, if, if a person's riding a horse, who's ruling the horse? Well, it's the, the rider, Right? The writer should be. I mean, he's supposed to be in control of the reins and all. That's the idea of, of leadership, in essence, is somebody that has control of the reins and knows how to, uh, how to manipulate the, the, the horse and to do, you know, to stop, to go, uh, and, and whatnot. And the, the people that we sometimes see in, in movies, you know, that don't know what they're doing on a horse and they're flopping around this way and that way. I want you to think about that person as being a type of the church or not the church, but the, the great harlot that is representing religious Babylon. Think for just a moment what I mean. Because in fact, that picture that we get at the beginning of this chapter, where there's this, this great harlot, uh, the, the mother of abominations and all, mystery Babylon, the great, riding a seven-headed beast, seven heads and, and the horns and all. In fact, when you look at that picture, it is the beast that is the active influence. It is the beast that is the active influence. Using her as dictators and tyrants have always used and abused religion as a tool to accomplish their purposes. Dictators have done it down through the ages. And it's still happening today. Have you ever heard of the United Religions Initiative. How many of you have heard of that? Anybody? A couple of you? Okay. Interesting thing. I got on its website today. And the first statement that you read there, quite a a well-done website. But the first thing you read there about it, it says, URI, United Religions Initiative, (laughs) 
is a global grassroots interfaith network that cultivates peace and justice by engaging people to bridge religious and cultural differences and work together for the good of their communities and the world. Now that sounds pretty nice. Right? I mean, they want peace. Everybody wants peace, right? And we want justice. We want justice for the you know, for others as well as ourselves. I mean, we it shouldn't be a weird thing to want those things. But wait a minute. Something else that was from their website, a statement that was made. It says, the idea for URI came to California Episcopal Bishop William Swing in 1993 after, listen, after an invitation by the United Nations. Hmm. Talk about red flags going up. United Nations that has no sense whatsoever. Honestly. They have no sense whatsoever in how to bring about peace. And they let some of the worst tyrants have a voice and speak from their platform. And most of the time when those Tyrants and dictators get up there. They are always against us, uh, the United States, and usually and mostly against Israel. Time and time again. So anyway, it says that the idea for the United Religions Initiative came to this California Episcopal, uh, Episcopal Bishop William Swing in 1993 after an invitation by the United Nations to host a large interfaith service in San Francisco. Marking the 50th anniversary of the signing of the UN Charter, he asked himself if the nations of the world are working together for peace through the UN then where are the world's religions? And so, he began this initiative. Gathering together all of these people from all the religions of the world. Does it sound interesting to you? Does it, does it sound even biblical to you that this is happening? I say biblical in the sense of end time prophecy, talking about these, this confluence of, of religions, just like uh, a new world order we need to establish. And so part of that new world order is going to be the, you know, that, that we bring together a, a, a religion uh, where we can all kind of just Let's all just be happy. I think of uh, what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1-3. through 3. He says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes... Oops. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when... And here it is. For when they say, Peace and safety... Because that's what they're saying. Look, we're going we're gonna to get peace together now because now we've got all the world religions getting together in a place where nobody really loves each other at all. I mean, everybody hates each other in the United Nations. I, I didn't know if you knew that or not. But, but now they have an initiative that talks about you know, world peace through religions. When they say peace and safety, then, Paul says, sudden destruction comes upon them. Is this not getting us ready for the appearance of Antichrist? Oh, I'm asking you. Is this not getting us ready? As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, which, by the way, is another one of those uh, word couplings uh, that uh, allow us to realize he's talking about the end times. It says, and they shall not escape. They shall not escape the destruction. 
Political Babylon and religious Babylon are walking hand in hand today. Political Babylon and religious Babylon are walking hand in hand today. And is there peace now? I really want to know. Is there peace now? I don't see it in the world. You know what the fact is? I don't see it in the world. I don't see it in nations. I don't see it in countries. In our country today, we are more polarized now as a nation than we've ever been before. There is no peace in the United States of America today because everybody's got an opinion. And unless somebody attacks us and we all get together and we, we wave the flags for a few months, you know, uh, there is no unity, really. This group, oh, oh by the way, you, know, go, you go from nation to state, then from state down into the very local areas and even in the homes of people today. Is there peace? There's no peace, you see, without the Prince of Peace. That's the point. But this group, the URI, the United Religions Initiative, it contains in its, in its um, global council trustees. In the trustees, it, 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 it has Buddhists and it has Hindus and it has Muslims. It has Catholics, it has Protestants. It even has a Wiccan priest as part of this global council trustees. Of the, of, the, of the trustees of this organization. A Wiccan priest, you know. A pagan priest, as it were. Guess where we are? We're back to Babel. We're back to Babylon. Bab-el, the gateway to God, became Babel, where God confused the languages and scattered the people. The world's religions are indeed a mere tool, you see, to accomplish Antichrist purposes in the days to come. And and, and so we must not be exclusive with just the Catholic Church's mystery Babylon. I mean, we we, we must press on now to this beast with the seven heads and the ten horns. You thought we weren't ever going to get there, huh? But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her. Did you notice it's not the woman that rides the beast here. It's it's the woman and the beast that carries her. He's carrying her. He's the active influence, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Interesting language. Let's consider the extent of the Roman Empire during the time of John the Apostle. First of all, if you look at the kind of the light tan color, oh, it's kind of encircles uh, the uh, areas of uh, Asia Minor and uh, uh, which is now Turkey and all, and then comes down into into uh, uh, the Mesopotamian Valley, which is of course Iraq, and then down through Persia, down into Egypt. That 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 whole area right there. In effect, that is the extent now, all the way through 117 A.D. Britain itself as well became a part of the Roman Empire then. So it was a pretty extensive area for that time. Uh, to give you a little better picture here, at least of, of some things, uh, if you'll notice northern Africa, Mauritania, Numidia, uh, in, in these upper regions of Africa or the African continent. That's all desert, of course. We know that's Sahara. But as you move toward the east, you, you get to Egypt. And then, of course, there's a section of, of Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula there. And then, of course, Judea, where Israel is. But notice all the other nations surrounding it, Syria. And if you go north, you see that area that that uh, talks about Asia and uh, Bithynia, Gal- Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, 
and, 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 and that area there, including Macedonia and Thracia. We always, always think that Greece is, is pretty much European. In effect, it's Asia Minor. And uh, it's, it's a part of what is considered uh, uh, Eastern, not Western. Although, you know, it, it kind of changes later on. But I bring this uh, because there, there's a, a, a lot of confusion over what this particular beast represents. Uh, some say that it represents a man, uh, the Antichrist, who becomes a world ruler. Now, we've talked about that a lot. And there is an Antichrist that's going to, that's going to be e- e- eventually very visible in world politics and, and government and all of that. Some people even believe that even on, uh, even on the earth today, he, he's, he's around. You know, it's quite possible. Others say that this beast refers to <clears throat> the revived Roman Empire that is supposed to come on the scene in the last days. Now, the reason for the confusion is simple. Sometimes the beast represents the Antichrist, and sometimes it represents a system or a worldwide kingdom that, in fact, the Antichrist will have rule over. But if this beast is a kingdom, it will be the kingdom over which the Antichrist will rule. Now, first of all, think of verse 9 again. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, it is, it is imperative for us to understand that the seven heads are called seven mountains. They are not called hills. Okay? There's a difference. There are different words for hills than there is for mountains. All right? So we got that, right? It's a pretty simple thing. Which makes me wonder why it is that immediately when we get to this verse... People say, all right, seven mountains, that must mean Rome. Because Rome is called the city of seven, that sits on seven hills. So, can you prove then that those seven hills are, are something that they have to sit on? By the way, if you look at a map of, of Rome and, 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 and you take seriously the extent of the, of the city of Rome in that area, there really are nine hills. What, what, did the other two not pay their dues? Or what? Or there's other cities. If you look up cities that are called the city of seven hills, if you look it up, uh, if you Google it or whatever you do, Bing it or whatever, uh, you'll find out that there's a bunch, of, a bunch of cities that are city of seven hills. There's a couple in Texas. There's a, uh, another one up uh, in the different areas of, of, of uh, the United States and other, and other cities of the world. So how come they didn't get the invite? So, so you see, we have to be very careful of, of how we're, we're dealing with these particular issues. It says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Okay, so now there's seven mountains, which mountains, by the way, means kingdoms or human government, but it's kingdoms and kings. Now, how many kings are in Rome? Well, in those days, there was only one and his name was Caesar, whichever one he was at the time. Domitian, by the way, it was, was the, the Caesar. So there weren't seven, there just one. So you see, it doesn't fit. So you begin to read these things, and you say, well, the seven hills is Rome. No, it isn't. Because it says that there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has yet not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. What does that mean? As we've talked about before, and I just mentioned it, monsoons are symbolic of kingdoms or empires. I'll make, make that clear. Kingdoms or empires and the association between the mention of kings and kingdoms makes looking for some city with seven hills absurd. Rome, by the way, is not the city, as I said, of, uh, just because it's called the city of seven hills. 
It isn't, in other words, about a city, but about seven kings and kingdoms. And again, certain Bible expositors and prophecy students see these seven kings as seven Roman emperors. As a matter of fact, some of them name the emperors. Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, and Domitian. The last being emperor during John's imprisonment in Patmos. But there were actually more than seven listed. I mean, if you've done your study of Roman, uh, especially the Roman Empire, you realize there were a lot more than seven. Now keep in mind that when John penned the book of Revelation, five world empires had come and gone. What does that mean? Five have fallen. Got it? Five kingdoms have fallen. Five empires have fallen. There it is. Five have fallen. Which ones? The Egyptian empire. All the way back to the time of Moses. Moses, Moses. Egyptian. The Egyptian empire or a kingdom. They were taken over by the Assyrian kingdom. But then the Assyrian kingdom, as powerful and as strong as it was, even in its early days, led by Sennacherib, they would fall. And they would fall to the Babylonian kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom had a a tremendous, uh, uh, powerful reign over the known world of the time until the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the Medo-Persian Empire was succeeded by those who took their rule from them, and that was the Greek Empire led by Alexander the Great. I mean the Great. We want to make sure you're still awake here. Alexander the Great, who, by the way, if you do a little bit of study, was Macedonian and not Greek. Greek was more Western thought. Macedonian was Eastern. I'll, I'll try to make that a little more clear. I don't have the time to do it. Uh, so. There it is. And thus five have fallen. And if you have your Bibles open to look at verse 10, look at verse 10. Five have fallen, and John goes on to say that one is. One kingdom is. Of course, John was living in the time of which kingdom? The Romans. The Roman Empire. That was the one that was, is. For him, it was. It, it is. Okay. The Sixth Empire. The Sixth Empire. It was still in existence when John was receiving the revelation. It ruled much of Europe, as we saw in the maps earlier. It ruled much of the northern Africa. And especially had a strong rule in the Middle East. That's important. The rule in the Middle East. It is the seventh empire that needs to be identified. We need to identify the seventh empire. Not umpire. Okay, I know it's baseball season, but not the umpire. The empire. I really am. I see some of you like, I'm trying to keep you awake here. Okay. It's the seventh empire that needs to be identified. And here's where things get really sticky and difficult. And therefore, I'm just going to say we're going to go home now. It, it is. It's going to be tough. This is, this is a real tough area. And then I've got to add fuel to the fire by adding verse 11 to the mix here. Because in verse 11 it says, And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And is of the seven. And is going to perdition. Ha! <laughs> what does that mean? So this verse refers back, if, if, as it were, to the first part of verse 8. If you remember, if you look at verse 8 of our text, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So it, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, 
and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Verse 11 tells us that the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth king and is of, of, O-F, of the seven. And I want to be very clear about the word seven here because it's not the seventh, but the seven kingdoms. What's the seven? I, I had to look it up in the, in the Greek uh, translation just to realize that the word that it was using was not the word seventh because there's a different word in the Greek for seventh. Seventh. It was the word seven. The six plus one that we're still trying to identify here. The beast is himself the eighth king and is of the seven. In other words, the seventh empire will come into existence and then cease to exist and will come back as the eighth and final empire. Now remember that the seventh did not exist during, during John's life. So think about this. This would dismiss the empire he was under. Which one was that? The Roman Empire. What's the first thing we want to say when we say there's a, you know, the next kingdom to come is really the revived Roman Empire. Everybody believes, I say not everybody, but I mean most Bible scholars and prophecy people, you know, the revived Roman Empire. Okay, I'll, I'll accept a little bit of that. I will accept a little bit of it. But think again. The beast that was and is not, is himself also the eighth king and is of the seven. I I checked, as I said, to make sure that the Greek word didn't mean the seventh, that he was of the seventh empire. No, he was of the seven. The seventh empire will come from the previous empires or kingdoms. That's the point. And the seventh will include them. And so will the eighth, which will be the revival of the seventh. Are you confused yet? All right, now here's one major problem that we need to deal with. And by the way, I'm still considering, as I said, the revived Roman Empire. Only with the understanding that it includes the strength of the Islamic revival. Okay? I will, I will accept that there is a revision to the Roman Empire, but what was the Roman Empire made of? If you look, go back to, we, if we were to go back to look at those maps, which I don't want to do because I'd have to go through the whole thing, but, but if you look at it, you would realize that much of their power lay in the Middle East and with the peoples who were now subservient to the Roman Empire but they served in the military of the Roman Empire. What was it mostly made of? The Arabs? The Syrians? The Babylonians? The Egyptians, the Libyans, most of these are the nations today that Jesus is coming to judge. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. If Rome, now listen carefully, we're trying to, trying to wind this up here. I'm going to try to do it as quick as I can. But if Rome was the sixth empire, 
and it comes again in a revived form as the seventh, then what are we to do with the eighth? Because this is a problem. If the sixth comes as a revived, or I should say if the seventh comes as a revived uh, revival of the sixth, then what are we supposed to do with the eighth? Because consider also that the six empires all ruled the Middle East, which of course includes Jerusalem. Remember, we cannot separate now Israel and Jerusalem from the picture of the rule of the known world at that time, who were the great powers uh, of that time. So the scriptures are focused on Jerusalem as the epicenter of the entire world. They are not U.S. focused. They are not European focused. They are not Far East focused. They are, the scriptures are, Jerusalem and Judea focused. Each of those six empires was succeeded by the next. Now this is another important thing. It's historic. So we have to consider this within the the biblical history of things. But each of those six empires was succeeded by the next, and each ruled the Middle East and Jerusalem. The question is, which empire overcame the sixth? The Roman Empire. Because if we know which overcame the sixth, then we have a good idea what nation or what kingdom is the seventh. Because remember, the Egyptians were overtaken by the Assyrians, who were overtaken by the Babylonians, who were overtaken by the Medo-Persians, who were overtaken by the, the Greeks who are overtaken by the Romans. So who overtakes the Romans? In our study of chapter 13, and I mentioned the consideration back then of the Islamic Caliphate having fallen at the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in 1924. And I, and I, and I try to draw a connection to that with, with that wounded head of, of the beast. And uh, we, we won't have time to go back there tonight. But this is, this is a good start for us to think about connecting the dots here with, between chapter 13 and chapter 17. But I alluded back then to the apparent fact that it was, that it was wounded, but has been on a steady rise again, in that it is believed that this caliphate will receive the successor to Muhammad, which is the Imam Mahdi, the Antichrist. You see, to the Muslim, to the Muslim, the Mahdi is the Messiah. To the believer, the Mahdi is the Antichrist. To the Muslim, Christ is not Messiah. They pretty much just give him the role of of being a good prophet. But they condemn the Father and the Son. But there is no Father and Son. There is only Allah. So you see the contrast. The greatest contrast in studying all of this is what is becoming more and more apparent in the world of religion, politics, and economics. Think about economics this way. Just think about all of those princes in Saudi Arabia who own the wealth of the oil of the world, who own the majority of that. Think about politically what's happening around the world today. And think how all of those nations politically have done everything they can over the last 60 plus years to destroy one little nation called Israel and want to capture a city that doesn't even exist in their own writings, the city of Jerusalem. By the way, if you didn't catch the, inf- the inference here, the Roman Empire, which didn't completely fall until 1453 A.D. to Muslim Turks, And years earlier, in 637 A.D., when the Islamic Caliphate of Umar ibn al-Khattab took Jerusalem, it was succeeded by 
the Islamic Empire. Rome. Which culminated with the Ottoman Empire that ruled the entire Middle East, beginning with Jerusalem for more than 1,300 years until 1924. The subjects of the Middle East defeated the Roman Empire, which tells us the Romans did not defeat the Romans. Do you get the picture? Let me read to you Revelation 13. Can you give me another extra five minutes? I'm just so glad you're not going to throw anything at me. (laughs) Revelation 13 verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. If you ever get an opportunity to go to Israel, and I hope you do in January, I hope you take the opportunity if you get it. But if you ever go, if we are even allowed the opportunity to step onto the Temple Mount, which we have done in times past, but sometimes it just just depends on who's in control and who's getting there. But when you walk up to the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Dome that is there in the midst of the old city of Jerusalem. Our guide will tell us exactly what is written all around the top and the insides of that Dome of the Rock. It's a, everything that is written on there is blasphemies against Christ and against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a blasphemy. It's a lot of, not everything that's written, but a lot of it that is to say that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. And if you really want peace, then you need to accept that. That's their offering of peace for people. As tough as this passage may be in properly interpreting every symbol, the fact remains that the Lord has made it clear that all these things are indeed in his control. And whether we understand it all or not, if you're here going, like I was doing a little while ago, whether we understand it all or not, at least we're realizing that there is good reason to keep looking for the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to close with these passages of Scripture to encourage your hearts, because we always want to leave being encouraged. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There it is. Looking for the blessed hope. Is there any more, is there any better hope in this world than Jesus Christ and Him alone? When all of the world's religions today are saying, listen, there are many roads that lead to God. You know the old saying, all roads lead to Rome? No, they don't. Jesus himself said, I am the way. I'm the way. The way means the road. I, I am the road. I am the way. I'm the path. I'm the way you get to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And God said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. Are you looking? Are you waiting? Are you ready? Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Speak these things. Speak them. Tell people about Jesus. Speak these things of what Christ has come to do and that he's coming again Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 through 11. Oops. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. You see, coming to Christ now, we're of the day. We're of the light of God and the glory of God. We've got nothing to hide. 
and, and as long as we live for Christ, we have nothing to hide. Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, and therefore comfort each other, and edify one another just as you are also doing. Amen? Let's pray.